Hello and welcome to episode two of the Bible and Me podcast. In this episode, Nigel Watts talks to Dr. Elaine Storkey, known across the world for her lecturing and writing, about her life as a Christian and her time as president of Tear Fund, and how her experiences and other people's stories inspired her latest book, Scars Across Humanity. We hope you will be encouraged. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals speaking and may not represent the views of Preset Ministries UK. We hope and pray that this podcast will bless you in your walk of faith. If it does, leave us a rating or review and subscribe for more podcasts every Friday. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Elaine Storkey to the Bible and Me podcast today. Uh, Elaine is a theologian, a philosopher, a sociologist, and is known um, across the world for her broadcasting, lecturing, and writing. Amongst the many and varied appointments in her life, she uh, presented BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day for more than 20 years, uh, was a member of the Church of England's General Synod for, I think, 28 years, <laughs> and was also president of Tear Fund from 1997 to 2013. Uh, her latest book, Scars Across Humanity, addresses the global incidence of violence against women. Elaine, welcome to the programme. It's uh, wonderful to be here. And I notice that you have three sons, like we have three sons Indeed as well. Indeed we do, yes. <laughs> um, how did you become a follower of Jesus, and why do you follow him? Well, I, I become, um, I was a churchgoer from a very young age, and my mother took me along to church. Uh, and in fact, n- my next-door neighbour, um, a woman who just loved to go to um, worship was much more dedicated than my mother was. My mother felt she should take me to church, but the moment the neighbour offered, um, I think mummy lapsed and <laughs> the neighbour took over. Uh, but it was about my teens <clears throat> when one of my best friends at school had just had an experience of God at a youth camp and was desperate to get me there. So uh, I was 16 and she lugged me along and I think that was the first time I really heard the gospel in any clarity. Um, something about the majesty of God and the just the enormous enormity of the relationship God had with the universe and with human people and, um, and the whole issue of sin. You know, what do you do about sin in your life? And I think uh, that clarity just hit me for six, really. And at that time, I just became a commit- very committed follower of Christ and really have been ever since. <clears throat> a small glitch at university um, when I was just taking philosophy and it was quite formidable working through a philosophical um, assignments and things. And I, I didn't realise at the time, but there was a man there who was quite determined to <laughs> eradicate any faith that anyone had in the department. Um, so I was a target for him. And it took a while to kind of recover from that, but I did recover because God is much stronger at the end of that period. Mm. Um, my faith was stronger, my awareness was deeper. Uh, and it also gave me the desire to actually help people who were struggling with faith. Um, those people who had become doubters or who just simply could not believe in God for whatever reason. I just was given an enormous amount of compassion for them and, and a desire to help in any way I could, really. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, <coughs> it seems that you have um, always had a close association with universities, uh, either as a student or, or as a lecturer. 
Um, was it always going to be that case, that, that <laughs> much of your time and your speaking was going to be at universities in many different places? I, I was an academic little girl. Um, I was always asking questions about why, uh, <laughs> and not usually satisfied with people's answers. Um, I was head girl of my school, my grammar school, and so I chose philosophy at university because, uh, as a, a new Christian, I thought if I could master this discipline and if God could speak to me through that, then in a sense there wasn't anything that um, was out of reach, as it were. And it was a good discipline for me. It really, it really suited me very much. Then I went into social sciences later. But yes, I mean, I'm an academic. Um, I think academically I ask questions when other people take things for granted. That I thought this was quite normal until mm. I kind of hit my mid-twenties and realised that most people don't ask questions about things. They, they live in a very routine way yes. of life. And I have, to, I have to live in a meaningful way. Um, and the search for meaning is a very deep part of my psyche, really. Mm. Um, because if we live in a meaningless universe, what's the point of it all? And <clears throat> that sense that everything must have a point, um, even if we don't understand the point. Um, but knowing that God understands the point um, is enough for me. But I think, uh, yes, I was always going to be an academic. <laughs> where, and where did that inquiry mind come from? I mean, were your parents very academic? Were they, no, were neither they... of my parents were academic, but my father is very similar uh, in his psyche and his uh, interrogation of things. And uh, he had a global picture of reality, um, similarly with my grandmother. But they were of the generation that on the whole just got on with life. You know, they, did, they weren't heavily educated. Um, but my father was grasped things very rapidly. Mm. Uh, he, he spent most of his life at sea, um, his younger life, um, as a fisherman and then as a naval officer. Mm. Uh, so he was quite new to all of this, and he, he thrived on my education. He loved it. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Uh, you, you travel widely, uh, speaking many different countries. Um, what is it that motivates you to speak out on the issues that you do. How, how do you decide what are the issues that you're going to talk about and what motivates you to do that? I think that they, they're usually the issues that are relevant at any given time. So uh, when I first speak, spoke, it was largely on apologetics, largely on trying to introduce people um, to understanding the Christian faith, um, trying to help them think it through especially those people who were coming from the outside. So for, for many years, most of my speaking was concentrated on uh, trying to introduce people to uh, conceptual thinking about God, trying to introduce people to the Bible, um, to a bigger vision of reality. Um, it, was, it wasn't technically evangelism. It was either pre-evangelism or uh, it often went into evangelism because, of course, if people were listening, then they asked questions about, yeah. about their, themselves and their own faith. Um, but then as time went on, I was, you know, in a sense, whatever was coming up mm. in people's lives, I started talking a lot about family <clears throat> and relationships. Um, and then issues of social justice became very, very important to me and still are. Um, the fact that we live in a fundamentally unjust world where evil rules in so many areas of life um, and where increasingly sin wins over righteousness and goodness. Uh, because the prince of this world is a powerful prince, and therefore um, alerting people to that. Mm. So I became, I suppose, much more concerned about prophetic uh, ministry, uh, alerting people to the, the horrors and the dangers and the pitfalls and the nuances and trying to prevent people from actually going in wrong directions that they were going to regret for the rest of their lives. And in order to do that, you have to give them a bigger picture 
of creation and then sin and redemption so that it becomes part of their own thinking pattern and their own DNA. But I, um, social justice concerns me enormously. The vulnerability of the marginalised people who nearly always pick up the tab for poverty or um, oppression or exploitation, they're the ones who suffer. And when you read the scriptures, you know that this has always been the case. And and it just, God's heart for those mm. people, mm. to me, is um, it's impossible to read the scriptures without recognising, especially the prophets, uh, how God, God's both God's anger and God's heart for justice and righteousness and for the protection of the poor and the, uh, the, the damaged and the disadvantaged. So that's, I suppose, where I've been for mm. the last... Mm my adult years mm. Mm. And, and where have you been doing that um, <coughs> wherever yeah. I've been asked to do it really <laughs> so I mean I've got no agenda it's not, it's not that I sit down and think now where would it be a good place to go <laughs> um, I nearly all nearly all my life has been responding to other people saying could you do this um, and mm. I've thought about it and prayed about it mm. and if it seemed the right thing to do then I've done it and I used to have a kind of chart um, I would Initially, in the early days, I accept invitations that no other Christians would ask to be asked to do. Um, but, but I would be able to be a Christian in doing that. So uh, that became a, a very strong priority. If no Christians had been asked to speak to this group or in this context, uh, provided that they allowed me to be a Christian in that context, yeah. then I would accept that. That would be high on my list of priorities. Mm. And that took me all over the place. Um, fascinating. Opened lots and lots of doors. And then later on, it was um, how people who were, you know, the issues were really about things that needed to change or uh, helping people to see how change was possible um, in a better direction. Those became important things. So it's I'm always responding to other people's kind of prompting or pleads, pleas or <clears throat> arrangements. And, um, and sometimes it's not wise to do that. <laughs> a friend of mine had me going around America uh, I mean, it was about 10 years ago. I had this great long list of things, and when she sent me my itinerary, I kind of whistled and thought, can I really get to those places? And I showed it to an American friend who was staying. He says, wow, Elaine, it looks as if you're running for president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, talking about president, uh, <laughs> you, were, um, you were president of Tear Fund, that's right. An amazing Christian charity for, yes. for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sort of a snapshot of what that involved mm -hmm. and what you were, as a president, were, I guess, trying to, seeking to achieve in your tenure? Well, again, it's one of those things I was asked to do. Um, the new CEO had been uh, appointed to Tear Fund, which is a, de a development and aid organisation, as you know. Um, I didn't know him. He phoned me and said, uh, could you take me out for lunch? At that stage, I was running an institute and then in the middle of lunch, he said he'd like me to be president of Tear Fund. Well, I nearly dropped my knife and fork. Um, and then I said, but why? And he said, well, I, I don't like limelight. I, I'm, I'm a person who actually gets things done, but I do want somebody to, to be our representative in the media and in the constituency and so on. And um, you're the person who's just in my head. Uh, I can't get it out of my head, so would you do this? And I said, actually, no, um, I can't do this because... I felt really bad. You know, many people I knew had given their lives to Tear Fund. Tear Fund was a very high priority for them, and, and I hadn't really supported Tear Fund that much. I mean, apart from eating an awful lot of cheese at hunger lunches and things like that. And so I felt a complete hypocrite, um, and I said, just, I can't do this. 
if I'd been heavily committed to Tear yes. Fund, then I would have done it. So yes. he was very disappointed and went away. And then I had a phone call from the chair of the trustees saying, I hear you've turned down our invitation to be president. And I said, yes, it would be wrong. It would be hypocritical. I haven't supported Tear Fund properly. Mm. And he said, Elaine, we know all of that. We've got the records. We've got the donation charts. We know how much you've given and not given. We're just giving you an opportunity to make amends. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. And oh. it continued in that I just went where they sent me. So if they needed me, first of all, they needed me to go to Haiti um, because I'm a French speaker and I, I can also, I'm an educationist. And we had some 36 schools that we were supporting in Haiti. Mm. And somebody needed to monitor uh, whether or not the money w was well spent and what we were achieving. And I, I hadn't travelled for four years with TIFF and I'd been president for four years without going to a country mm. because I just... In, Imagine all those people giving money to Tear Fund and what they weren't giving money for was so a president could go on an aeroplane and have a freebie. Yeah. So I didn't go. But in this case, they said, well, if you don't come, we'll have to buy somebody else in. Um, so I went and it really changed my whole attitude to life and um, my whole understanding of my role as president. My role clearly was to be out there getting information of what we were doing, bringing it back to people in the UK, um, pleading the cause. And then the donations followed. I mean, it was much, much more efficient, uh, economically efficient than not going. Yeah. Um, so I was wrong about that. And it really just changed my whole outlook. Seeing the, um, the level of poverty and deprivation and disadvantage, but also just what a, a few pounds from the UK could do overseas. I'm amazing, really. Um, how they could, it could transform lives, transform churches and, and their ability to minister and give and so on. So that was a, a, an enormous insight that I gained from those early years. Mm. And yes, I've travelled um, most of East Africa, South Africa, a bit of North Africa, none of the West, and uh, a lot of Asian countries too, mm. and Latin America. It's been an, an enormous privilege <clears throat> and it's taught me a great deal, um, a great deal of how when the rubber hits the road, God's faithfulness is still there for people. And people who know that in their hearts can carry on, you know. And, and I've seen people, I just, you ask yourself, could I do that in their situation, you know? Um, could I actually continue in faithfulness and prayer and commitment and so on when everything is stripped away from them, everything? And the answer is you just don't know, but you just believe in the grace of God that he holds them and <clears throat> will do the same for you. So it's been a wonderful learning experience and many, many warm and rich friendships and <coughs> it's taught me a great deal. Mm. And, and in terms of your own faith, your <coughs> own journey of faith and understanding of God, yes, would you say that it's had an impact on that as well? In, enormous impact. It's shown me how um, real integrity in the sight of enormous danger uh, in, can actually come from the most unexpected places. I mean, just to give one story, if there's time. Yeah. I was in the Congo. Um, there'd been a, an, an internal war, and um, a civil war going on for ages. Many areas were decimated. We lost a complete compound, and um, we had to close the compounds that were operating with tear fund because it was too dangerous. They were being targeted by the uh, militia. Uh, people were being killed and so on. So one, when we closed one compound down, we left a big truck um, um, which had all the kind of accoutrements. It was a, a, a landmine proof. It had radio control and so on. We couldn't do anything else. I mean, and the people pulled out. And the driver who had been working for Tear Fund, a Congolese man, they were all Congolese, uh, stayed there with the truck. 
and now he had a decision to make. What would he do with this truck? So he dug a very deep hole and buried the truck in the compound and covered it over so that when the militia came in, there was nothing to take, nothing to do. Uh, and they went away, left him alone. He was the only one left there. And the question is, what does he do with this truck? I mean, we hadn't paid him, apparently, by this stage. I mean, I only found this out month, years later from mm. someone else who told me the story. Um, so he could have sold the truck and collected it as his wages. He could have given it to the opposing militia. Yes. They would have paid him yeah, yeah. well Absolutely, for it. Yeah. He could have given it to the old Congolese army. They would have paid him for it. Um, or he could have stripped it and used it in a whole range of ways. And he just thought and prayed about this and decided he would drive it to the nearest open compound, which happened to be 300 miles away. So he drove the truck across very um, very rough territory, very dangerous territory, deposited it in this uh, Tierfund compound, and then hitchhiked, walked, and got a lift all the way back home. Now, that's extraordinary. This was a poor man, a man with nothing. And yet the integrity, this was not his truck. Mm. This belonged to mm. Tierfund. Mm. It was God's truck, and mm. therefore it had to go where it could be used again. Mm. And that that just makes you... It speaks, doesn't <laughs> it? It does. It does. it does, really. And that you see that multiplied over and over again mm. in the hours that people give to one another mm. and the commitment they give to God. It's it's actually a very humbling experience. And you're, you're, you're challenged yourself, aren't you? When All the you, time. You see those things, All the time. You see those things happening. Um, you were on the Church of England Synod for many years, 28, I think. Uh, is that, I think, the longest serving member, maybe? No, um, no, somebody's topped that. Oh, right there. <laughs> um, often, the Church of England gets bad press. Uh, and we know who, you know who sort of controls the airwaves, in, in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. What is your sense of the future of the Church of England, its, its role in society, its future? I mean, you, in a sense, you've got an inside track on this, being very mm-hmm. close to it and... Mm-hmm. and uh, for many years. What, what would you say to that? Well, the Church of England is many different things. Um, I mean, at a structural level, it's a church that has never been able to decide whether it's evangelical or reformed, um, or, or Catholic or reformed. And so in that sense, it, it's a composition of very different kinds of theology, mm. which all come together in a kind of melting pot. Mm. And sometimes they don't melt. Sometimes they, they're great blocks of ice, and you've got to negotiate one another. Uh, that's a, a historical an act of history, really, is mm. it's how it all happened and how it's developed. Um, I, I happen to think that that's quite enriching, because if you can really get to the kernel of the faith of the brother and sister who holds a different kind of theology from yours and, and find out what you have in common. And what we have in common is that we believe in the reality of Jesus Christ as our saviour. Once you're there, you've got an awful lot you can work with mm. and uh, you can build, mm. rather than just focus on the things that divide you, you yes. know, my views on this or yes. his views on the sacraments or whatever. Yes. That's a waste of time. If we're going to focus on those, we can talk about them or try and sort them out. So my, my way of in the Church of England is always to try to find people I can be reconciled with and work with positively on whatever agenda we feel that God has produced at that time. And the Church of England, in a certain sense, mirrors the society mm-hmm. that we live in. Mm-hmm. It has all of the problems and struggles and pains and brokenness that, that's there in society. Um, and it's been entrusted with the good news uh, to bring to those people in society. When I get impatient with the Church of England, it's when we start to celebrate doubt as though this is one great, massive, fantastic achievement, um, rather than mourn doubt. I think when, you, when you've got a situation where 
people don't believe and they, they don't, you know, they no longer know how to move forward with God. We don't celebrate that. You know, you, you, you weep over it. Um, and so there's, there's a kind of tendency in some areas of the church to, to make that a very exciting big issue. Um, but I think the, what the church can do is continue just to preach the gospel. Yeah. And the, the other thing I wanted to say is what the Church of England really is, um, is hundreds, thousands of small uh, com- Christian communities dotted all over the, the, the country um, and doing tremendous work. Many of them are doing an amazing amount of work loving the community, setting up all kinds of things that enable people in the community and just um, holding people's hands and leading them to God. Mm. So, and, you Which know... Which never gets into the press. No, no, we miss that all the time because that's not news, is it? Mm. Uh, I mean, even our tiny little church here, right opposite our house, uh, we, you know, it's a community church. It belongs to the village. The village knows it's there. The Sunday attendance is minute. Um, but if you do carols on the green before Christmas, the whole the whole village turns out. And, you know, we celebrate something that they still want to hang on to. Yeah. They want to believe in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. They want to believe that that baby in the manger was really the son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can be a vehicle for helping people to do that. So I think it has to be, um, it has to be kind of a church that's, it's because itself knows what wounds are like, able to, to help those who are wounded in our culture. Mm-hmm wonderful now your your latest book uh, scars across humanity understanding and overcoming violence against women was published reasonably recently um, why did you write this particular book and what response has there been to it I wrote it because really of my experiences in the Congo that's what forced me to write it um, because traveling down a war-torn African country uh, and the eastern provinces and coming over and over again um, against rape, um, women who had been raped, where rape was being used as a weapon of war. If you haven't got the bullets, let's rape the women. And the reason they were raping the women was because that actually very efficiently wipes out the next generation. If you can make sure that the progeny um, of sex is your own tribe, your own uh, people, rather than those people, um, then you can decimate the population. And also it's a way of humiliating the men, mm-hmm. rape the women in front of them. Uh, it's a way of inflicting illness and disease because a lot of the people mm-hmm. who are raping are HIV positive and so on. Mm. So the, the, and it's a sign of incredible hatred. Um, and having seen so much of this going down the South Kivu province, uh, I just realised actually that I'd seen it all somewhere before, but in a different form. So I'd seen um, it, intimate partner abuse in the UK I, I was, a, for a long time, a member of a group of people who were helping incest survivors get over um, and come to terms with what had happened to them in the past and actually find God in that process of healing. Mm. So I'd been involved with many different forms of violence, and I think what the Congo experience taught me was that every culture, every country on earth um, has institutionalised violence against women in some way or another whether it's selective abortion in India, where little girl babies are killed in the womb because girls aren't valued and people want sons, um, or they're left out to die, the infanticide is still very high in India, or female genital mutilation in 26 African countries where a girl's genitalia is simply cut out and then she's stitched up until her wedding night. 
so that her sexuality could be owned, not by her, but by her future husband. Um, and it's barbaric. There are no health benefits. It's an absolute barbaric process. Mm. And then child brides marrying little girls mm. off to much older men, and they're often violated. Honour killings, intimate partner violence, rape, prostitution is a form of violence too, because most prostitutes are not there by choice. Mm. I mean, you will hear the argument that they are, but for every 10 career prostitutes, there are 10,000 who have actually been saddled with this and can't get out of it. And then trafficking, of course, we now know that. We're doing something about it in the church. And rape and, and sexual violence in war. So suddenly, I wanted to actually put issue. this down. It was a huge issue. and wanted to document, A, what I'd seen, B, what I know other people have seen, and, um, and make a record of it. But then, of course, ask the question, so why? Why? Why is our world like this? Why do we actually... Um, why do the innocent suffer? Why do the... Uh, the vulnerable suffer, the marginalised, the people who are actually can't defend themselves. Yeah, I mean, a non-Christian can say, yeah, where's God, where's God in all of this? Yes, and a, a Christian would say the same in many ways. But, the, but the, then the last few chapters of the book are trying to answer the question, why? Um, one of my chapters I give over to sociobiology and um, evolutionary psychology. So there's the academic stuff coming in, uh, where they're arguing, well, this is, this is what it is to be human, um, you know. The, there's a, it's a, part, a matter of testosterone, it's a matter of genetic survival and all the rest of it, and men and women are different, and men will go around um, enacting violence on women because it's the way that their genes are going to survive over and against other people's genes. So, I mean, I, I hope I wipe the floor with that because I think it's a terrible argument. <clears throat> the idea that we're just all driven by our genes, that we're, we're not capable of making any of our own willful decisions. Mm. Um, and then we, I look at a lot of social science arguments and so on. But my, in a short nutshell, my conclusion of the book is you will never explain violence against women unless you have a healthy biblical understanding of sin. Once you begin to understand what sin is and how it's endemic in the human race mm. um, and what we do to each other um, in terms to, of harm and damage, once we begin to understand that, then we can see that this is a form of sin writ large. But then, of course, we can... It's optimistic because sin never has the last word in biblical theology. Now, there's always a possibility of redemption. Mm. So I, I wanted to get the message out. I wanted to stand alongside those women and men who are fighting against this anyway in the secular world. And I wanted the Christians to have a place at the table. But also I want the church to take a lead on this. I want us to be able to announce to people this is not right. Mm. This is wrong and we can actually come against it in God's name, and we can work together to eradicate it. Mm. And I, I believe we can. And there has been a good response to the book. Mm. And um, in the UK, uh, uh, even in the UK, there have been groups set up all over the country. Um, a colleague of mine from Tear Fund came on board. His, his name is Peter Grant, and he set up this organisation called Restored. My husband and I are both ambassadors for Restored. And he and a co-director, Mandy Marshall, um, their, their idea is that expose violence, expose marital discord, expose rape and so on that's going on, but then bring healing um, and help people to actually uh, take preparatory steps so that it doesn't happen mm. in their communities. And Peter has this organisation called First Man Standing, where he's inviting Christian men all across the country to stand with him um, against violence against women. 
And that too has been tremendously successful. I need to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go for I it. I need to sign up. <laughs> now, uh, we, we met um, for the first time at the Salisbury Diocese Conference last summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were speaking there. We as a ministry were invited to, um, to have a stand there uh, amongst the, the ministers there. Just wondering, had you heard of the, uh, the work of Precept before that stage? No, yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't heard. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a sorrow that I hadn't heard because I was, when I went onto the website and saw what you did, mm. I mean, obviously, you, you can't do that in the overnight. I mean, it's obviously been going a long time. Mm. So I should have heard of you. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't. No, not at all. But yes, I mean, it was, it was interesting and also encouraging yeah. just to hear what you're doing at, um, at ground level. Mm rather than the esoteric level or, um, or just church level. It's, uh, it's a tremendous way of getting the message out. Yeah. 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 Now, um, the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible, because I, I know you love the Word of God. And Why is the Bible so important to you? Because it is God's revelation of God's self, um, and it's also God's revelation of ourselves. So if you read, read it carefully, it's our story, um, our cosmic story as human beings writ large, and um, our story in relation to the God who made us. So we are self-identified so powerfully in the Bible as fundamentally people in relationship. And that cuts across so much of what we, what we think about the person in our own culture. I mean, we're so uh, dogmatic about individualism. We, you know, it's me and my rights and my choices and my preferences. And, and we've enthroned the individual mm. and my will but actually, we're never just like that. And the Bible makes it very clear we're persons in relationship. And mm-hmm. so therefore, all the time, the thrust is how do we manage these relationships? And we manage them by going back to the Bible and looking at what we're supposed to be doing in our relationship with each other. And I think the New Testament is wonderful on this and St. Paul's writings and everything. You know, don't look after your own interests. Look after the interests of one another. Um, put your own interests on the back seat. Uh, love one another, do, go the second mile, all of these kinds of things. Mm. Now, it doesn't take, you know, have a rocket science or <laughs> PhD in, <laughs> in hermeneutics to be able to understand that. It's very clear. So there's so much about the Bible, um, in the Bible, that teaches us who we are and teaches us who God is. And the fact that, and the patience of God and the long-suffering of God, the nature of God to keep coming back and giving us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. And that wonderful idea that new every morning is God's love for us, you know, a clean slate every morning. And just this week I've been uh, with Christian organisations that operate, one of them is up in Leeds, clean slate theory. So they work with very, very disadvantaged people in the community who are drug habituates and so on. Um, but they have a clean slate uh, um, policy. So whatever went on yesterday, you know, whoever insulted you or offended you or uh, called you rude names and marched out and you had to actually put them out of the the house, the communal house that um, is there as a drop-in centre because they were so obnoxious. So tomorrow is another day. So they can come back and it's a clean slate. We start again another day. I think that's wonderful. That's grace, isn't it? And it is so close to the grace of God, yeah. So all of that you get from the scriptures. Mm. But then it's, uh, I mean, it's a, the, the thing is about the Bible as well. People think of it as a book or two books. Of course, it's not. It's not at all. It's a, it's a library. Mm. So it's a compendium of so many different kinds of literature, mm. uh, whether that's historical literature, whether it's war records or whether it's biography, um, 
as the Gospels are, but only partial biography, whether it's letters or dream analysis or prophecy or songs or psalms or whatever. It's absolutely packed full with different forms of literature, mm-hmm. all needing to be read as those forms of literature, yeah. and yet all together the word of God. I mean, this is mind-blowing. It really is. It is it? mind-blowing. It is. And I think people who don't respect the Bible and don't see the riches um, and also misuse the Bible, trying to get something out of the yeah. Psalms that's not there because yeah. that's not what they're for. Yeah. They're for singing and dancing and celebrating and lamenting. You know, mm. they're not for doctrinal issues. You get those elsewhere in the book, um, in the Bible. So I think that being um, being observant as to what the Bible is doing and then learning from it and absorbing it and letting it speak to us. Uh, and the Bible reveals ourselves, reveals us to ourselves and challenges us and rebukes us, but also encourages. And, and of course, most of all, the Bible focuses on Jesus. Um, and that, that's the, the wonderful passage from the prophecies in the Old Testament uh, through to the incarnation in the New Testament and then the fulfilling of that in Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. It's so fantastic. It's amazing. We're studying it Micah is. at the moment. Oh, Micah wonderful. 5.2. <clears throat> and there was a prophet lived 700 years before Christ was born. Exactly. Saying exactly where exactly. he was going to be born. You think, yeah. oh my goodness me. And that's just one of maybe 300 prophecies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Isn't it, is. It? It, it is. It really, it really is. is. How do you go about reading it yourself and studying I mean... Yeah, how, how do you do well, that? Well, in different contexts, <laughs> yeah. really. It depends on the context I'm in. So I'm, I'm studying mostly in order to communicate it because um, that's, that's a, I'm a communicator. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the fact that I've now got a piece of work to do, I've got a sermon to preach, I've got a group to do or yep. whatever, yep. <clears throat> sends me immediately to a chapter and then I get the guts out of it or if I'm doing Bible study notes for people. Um, and it's that, it's that learning again, even if the passage is very familiar... I have never had the experience where I've gone back to any passage of the New Testament that I haven't read a hundred times and still got something new out of it. That's an amazing thing. It is amazing, isn't it? And suddenly, something you think, what? Why didn't I notice that before? (laughs) I've read that a hundred times. And it leaps out at you and you think, where? (laughs) So... I have a little, I have a little, we use Psalm 23 a lot as a, a, like an introduction to uh, inductive study. And... uh, and I had this thing with God saying, uh, very arrogantly, I have to say, you know, Lord, I'm sure, you know, I've done this so many times, there's nothing <laughs> to do And yet he still yeah, reveals new yeah, things. Yeah. I think, oh, my goodness me, Quite. this is crazy. Yes, know? it is, it is. So I, I do it, um, I read it and study it in order to communicate. Um, but then sometimes I do it in, with other people who are seeing things differently. So um, for 10, 15 years, I was a member of um, a, th- a small religious therapy group led by two Jewish psychiatrists and there were two Jewish rabbis in this group and then an assortment of other people, mostly Christians, but from different areas of the church backgrounds. And I found reading the Old Testament with some of the Jewish rabbis fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And of course they can't cope with our understanding of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Um, The suffering servant has to be Israel because if it's not Israel, (laughs) then it's It's going to be Jesus. So, and, and therefore, going, um, being motivated to go back to those passages and study them again, because you're now with somebody who sees these differently, uh, that's also mm. been a strong motivation mm. for me. Um, so, yeah, I study, them, study the scriptures. Sometimes I just take a passage and then think about it during the day or on a train or whatever. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, it, it depends on in what the task is ahead, and it depends on where I am at any particular time or, and who I'm with. Mm. 
if I'm with somebody I feel would benefit from um, looking at a bit of the scripture, I'll yeah. ask them, would they be interested? Yeah, very good. And they, they often are. It That's sounds good. to me as though it's part of, it's part of who you are. The yes. Bible is Yeah, sort of... I mean, I don't make sense. I don't make sense as a person without the scriptures. Hmm. I mean, if people want to know me, this is who I am. Hmm. And um, so try to, you know, <laughs> I was asked to go somewhere and strip away my faith, and I said, well, there's nothing left, you know. <laughs> Now, do you have a favourite Bible book? That, that's, you know, that's a difficult one, I appreciate. But is there one particular book that you think, yeah, if I was on a desert island, I was only allowed one of the 66 books, oh, that would gosh. be it. You know, I don't know. You may or may not. Do you have a favourite? Um, I, th- I think, I mean, the Gospel of Luke would probably be the one I'd hang on, hang on to, uh, like grim death. Um, <laughs> partly because Luke is obviously a doctor. He's obviously not a, a Jewish person. Um, or hasn't been there all his life. And he's got all kinds of insights that just... Uh, I love his... Um, and, and I love his narrative of women as well, and all of those things, and the centrality of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. But there's, I've got lots of... And the whole passages. I don't have a single verse favourite, mm. because I, I never just read just verses. It's got to be a whole passage. Yep. So I think Colossians, uh, where Jesus is the firstborn of all creations... Mm-hmm. Um, the one in whom all things hold together. Mm-hmm. That passage is mind blowing, and if I'm um, if I'm wondering uh, about the meaning of it all, just reading in what way does everything hold together in Jesus? It's just a, he is the image of the invisible God. Yes, so, that's right. And that's a, for yeah. me that was a yeah. phrase. So yeah, God is invisible. Yes. So you know people have these different ideas about who God is. He's a guy with a beard on a cloud, whatever. Yeah. But actually. That nails it. Yeah. He is the image yeah. of the image. So if That's you right. want to know about God, then you've got to That's look right. to Jesus. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Um, yes, indeed. But I also love lots and lots of things in the prophets. The prophet Isaiah. Um, the, oh, the promises of, of fulfillment and, and healing. And Isaiah 61, where he's mm. going to heal, bind up the brokenhearted, mm. you know, restore restore the weak and um, I think all of these passages are so poignant and uh, they are moving. and then of course Jesus stands in the temple of Nazareth that's right and he points it, it to says, himself it yes that's right exactly oh, <laughs> it, it is yes. amazing is it yeah. um, what is next for <laughs> you I mean uh, looking looking back over over you know the many embarrassing things you've been involved with. I can't, I can't sort of see retirement anytime soon, probably. No, uh, I mean, I have no idea what that word means, even. Um, <laughs> I thought a couple of years ago um, I'd be just easing off before I wrote the book. And uh, I've, I've got to finish a biography I'm writing of Lynn Lucy, uh, who was married to a Congolese surgeon, um, and she died of cancer three years ago now. And we were writing her biography together because they are the ones who founded Heal Africa. Um, and it's um, I'm now so late in this manuscript, and the the problem I've had is because she's not here with me, she can't answer my questions about the text I'm putting in, and the stories. So her her widower comes over and stays with us every summer uh, since she's died, but of course he's telling his story, not Lynn's story. And though, so I'm hearing um, I'm hearing his version of what Lynn is telling me, and thinking, no, this is not working, <laughs> and I've really got to find a way of cracking this. I've got to finish Lynn's biography because it is the most amazing story of the most amazing woman I've ever met in my life. Mm. Just somebody who gave her life to the Congo. And I think that her level of integrity just takes my breath away. Mm. I must do that, I believe. I mean, when she died, her obituary 
reached parts of the world that no no Christians are ever mentioned in. I mean, she had a long obit in The Economist, of all things, um, because people had met her and just been so struck by by her goodness and her love of God, really, and love of people. So I want to finish the writing I've got to do. I've got to finish my novel. I started this novel about 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's changed its shape as it goes on, but I'm, I think I know where I'm going with it. Ooh. So every now Are we again, allowed I'm, to know what that's? Uh, no, no, no it's, it's about a house. It's about, about masonry. <laughs> oh, right. I started writing it um, on a long, long train journey. And, you know, I nearly missed my, my stop at the end because I was yeah. so into this. Um, but I think I'd like to do that. And I probably want, need to ease off this, the travelling and the speaking. Um, I've been trying to em- empower and encourage younger women to take it up, and that's, that's certainly happening. There's a lot more women speakers now than there were when I was a young woman. Uh, I seem to be doing an awful lot of it then. And, and they're great. And I, I mentor a lot of young women, so stay in touch, because in, in the climate that we're in, it's very easy to go off the rails, fr- frankly. And... Uh, for all of us to have the pressures that are coming in on us yeah. and not um, and not see the clarity of, of the vision ahead. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important to stay in there. And then I really do want to spend more time with my grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, had the, we had the whole family here for Christmas, which was a great joy, 14 of us. Oh. And um, it's wonderful. It's really just an absolute peach to, to have them all together in the same my, room. My eldest son is going to get married in September. Oh, right. So um, I'm not allowed to say this to him, so I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast, <laughs> but I, I can't wait to be a granddad. It's wonderful. I, I haven't it's met wonderful. a single grandparent that hasn't said, it's wonderful. It is wonderful. And one of my biggest regrets, being a dad of three boys, is uh, being in the army a lot, is I was away so much when they were yes. young, and of course mm. you can't bring those years back. No, that's so, true. So I, I, I see, you know, grandchildren age kids around I think, oh I want one of you I want one of you, you know, I can't, can't wait so so uh, I get exactly what you're saying about that um, it's, it's it's tremendous they are lovely lovely human beings mm. and you just look at them actually with our three boys each of the grands we've got we could only do boys for years so we had three sons four nephews four grandsons oh, no. yeah and then suddenly a wee girl pops up yeah. and she's completely different from all of the boys now we've got another grandson so we've got five grandsons and one granddaughter oh. <laughs> and the four older ones uh, who are now all teenagers get on tremendously well mm. always even though they're completely different parts of the country mm. our oldest is up in scotland um, and it's a great joy to see them interacting with each other yeah. and even discussing the ones who are convinced about the reality of God and, um, yeah. and faith in Christ and the yeah. others who are not quite so sure about this yeah. and listening to yeah. them <coughs> overhearing conversations. Well, having you as a grandma would know. be, <laughs> be a good one, really, wouldn't it? And then they're different personalities. I mean, one of them, um, I, what was I taking tablets for? I can't remember what it was. Some, something, that uh, mild infection. And uh, he's watched me taking these and said, are you all right, Nanny? Yes, I'm fine, darling. Are you sure you're all right? Yes, I'm fine. And so he went away, and then a bit later he came back. You will take those tablets, won't you? Yes, of course I will. Why? Because we want to grandma for a bit longer, he says. They just say it how it is, don't they? Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, listen, I think we've come to the end of our time. I I primarily want to thank God for the gifts that he has given you and also for the fact that you have taken those gifts and you have used them in very many wonderful ways to serve Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. and um, 
just continue to pray for good health. Thank you. And Thank uh, you. for uh, God to open the doors that he wants to open for mm-hmm. you. And uh, that as a result of what you do, what you communicate, that people would have a clearer understanding of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. and be encouraged to follow him for his purposes. So thank you so much. Well, my, my greatest joy is actually networking with people who are really doing something. I mean, I can talk, I can communicate, but there are people out there just doing it, living it day after day, uh, giving their lives, pouring their lives out for God in often very difficult circumstances. And I think one of the biggest and underrated Christian virtues is hope. Um, and therefore helping people to find hope and communicating uh, the reality of those who found hope and are doing things in a hopeful, loving, faithful way, uh, letting other people know about them. If I can carry on doing that for the next 10 years, I shall be more than happy. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You have been listening to The Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at PreceptMinUK.